his his journey before the well beginning and then before that with Jordan Peterson. And as a part of that, I kind of one who introduced uh, talking about uh, Kierkegaard with Paul on on a couple of occasions actually I think, and I think that's one part of how this got kind of started. But before that, I had uh, I had uh, I'm. Uh, People who watch this kind of maybe know a little of this, but I'm a I'm a physician. I'm an older guy compared to the rest of the the rest of the kind of gang in this corner of the internet, as it's been referred to, and um, and and I'm a physician, and but I have this interest in all things intellectual, but also things touching on Christian themes, and that's been a part of my life uh, forever. And it, because of that, I think it became a part of my son's life, Kevin. And a part of that was a kind of journey with Kierkegaard. I first read Kierkegaard in college, but then I got interested in it in a, in a many years ago, 15 years ago at least, a guy named Hubert Dreyfus, who was doing a kind of, um, you know, culture and philosophy and film kind of course that he teaches out at Berkeley or used to teach out at Berkeley. And as a part of that, he talked about fear and trembling. And that brought me back to my college days and a deep dive in film. And so I really kind of dove into it at that point. And so I had this thing of, of Kierkegaard and Fear and Trembling in the back of my mind as I was reading other stuff in the intervening years. And at some point, Kevin and his, uh, his uh, maturing in college and, and a friend of his were kind of intellectually inclined and and we're um, investigating some things. And I introduced the idea of Kierkegaard to them. And then they kind of dove into it from their own perspective. And, um, and Kev is a kind of a poetic guy, a, a, a writer uh, of music, performer of music. And uh, he's integrated kind of what I would call thoughtful poetry into his, into his musical lyrics and the, and the band that he that he's a part of. And this friend that I was referring to is a part of that band as well. And he's also a poet. And so Kierkegaard kind of was a natural fit there as well as other things, uh, T.S. Eliot and some other things that we all love talking about. And, um, and that's how Kevin, I think, turns into this conversation a little bit. Uh, and I mentioned something I talked about the last time, which is that he has one song in his new suite of songs with his band that's called Afraid and Trembling, which, which is basically well, I'll let him talk about that, but it's a it's a direct connection from fear and trembling to his music. So, and Kev's uh, now graduated from college and doing other things. Uh, going to be going to school for for uh, for other things beyond college, and has always kept his interest in ideas and poetry and music. So that's Kev. Right. Kev, uh, Kevin, are you going to um, say a few introductions or has he covered you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, one thing that's unique to my story that I feel like I always have to share is, you know, not to make this about my own experience, but I had a mystical encounter when I was very young. And my journey into Christianity has always been how, how can I see what I encountered or my experience in the form and language and symbolism of this religion. And so, um, you know, a lot of what 
I've encountered God has been a very intimate and personal thing. And I think Kierkegaard has kind of affirmed that side of it and ultimately opened up the religion of Christianity to be a vehicle for encountering this kind of mysterious, um, deeply personal presence that I consider God to be, if I can even really speak about it. So, um, yeah, I love, I love fear and trembling. Now that's my main kind of work of his that I've explored also read sickness unto death. And I listened to your guys' conversations about that as well. Mm, yeah. I, I can definitely see how Kierkegaard could help you there. He's, um, he's definitely got that, that side to him. Um, uh, Jared? Oh, he's just moving his chair. Um, I can introduce Jared a bit. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of an interesting story how <laughs> I came across Jared online. Um, and it sort of fits just it's a really good segue into the conversation topic I wanted to, to explore today. Um, so I think I first came across Jared on Esther O'Reilly's blog. Yes. She had this, <laughs> she had this um, article on, on Christian apologetics. What was it called, Jared? Do you have an idea? Uh, I don't recall. I can find it real quick. Yeah, it was, it was called something like um, uh, why apologetics is good or something. And she had this apologetic for apologetics. And um, Jared got triggered by that piece and he weighed in, <laughs> in on the comments and he had this, had this really good exchange going with Esther. And Esther wasn't agreeing with anything he was saying. And I, I came across his exchange and I was like, whoa, this guy, Jared and I, we were on the same page. I should, I should, uh, I should reach out to him and, and get him to, to see what he thinks about my blog on Kierkegaard. So I just sent him a link on, on one of my pieces. And then he just um, read my piece, uh, enjoyed what I had to say, and then wrote me like a, this long reply. And now we've been, we've been corresponding through the blog um, and through email, just sending these long emails back and forth. And he's, uh, he's, got a, he's got a pretty interesting background. I'm not sure if he wants to share that here, but he's a, he's a really interesting fellow. <laughs> yeah, whatever's relevant, it's up to you guys. Uh, I believe it is, has Christian apologetics failed? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was the piece. Yeah, or, or if, um, if that's not it, that's one of her more, more recent ones. But Yeah, I think that, that was no. the piece. The answer yeah. is yes, by the way. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> agree, agree. Uh, let me see if I, okay. Hey, Jared, so, so yes. fill me in on that. Because what, what, I, I, I like Esther a lot. She, she and I talked on one of the comment streams because uh, she picked up on she, she's one smart cookie, I'll tell you. And um, we went back and forth about, about which is kind of my favorite favorite uh, poem of all time. And she she also had a, a, a dissertation or a report of some sort that she had written earlier on on four quartets, which I found very fascinating, fascinating, and and had a depth to understanding it that even. Well, well, it was more than me, me, and which surprised me a little bit. Not that I, not that I'm a scholar of it, but I'd been thinking about T.S. Eliot and Four Quartets for a long time, and she just new things. So anyway, I love Esther, but um, so I'm interested in Jared. What what was your what was your point about? about uh, yeah, and I'm actually uh, reading reading over my comments then to see if I can remember what it was I said then. But yeah, I mean, I, I find her very bright as well. She's obviously knows her apologetics. I, I kind of came from that world. I had sympathy for apologetics for quite a while. But there's 
there's no there's no personhood in it. I, I sort of feel like if Esther succeeds in her project, she's described this this abstract thing that nobody should really care about. If you're interested in what the fact is, if you want to know what Christianity is as a matter of history, if that's your only concern, uh, she perhaps can do that. I mean, we can get into the arguments to find out, um, you know, what uh, to, to what degree they have merit. But ultimately, if she succeeds, what is a person supposed to do about that? Uh, being a Christian isn't a matter of memorizing a set of uh, memorizing a set of doctrines and certainly not memor uh, memorizing some apologetic methodology, which is uh, which she seems to be selling more uh, stridently than apologetics itself. It seems to me that there's not only a doctrine that you have to subscribe to, but there's a particular way in which you have to subscribe to that doctrine, and Christianity is uh, apparently captured in that project. And I just don't find anything in that project to be appealing in any sense. And if I can add something to that, I think what what I, what I often find with apologists is they end up by trying to argue Christianity in a sense from without or, you know, they're sort of taking this outside perspective and sort of looking at Christianity through a microscope. And in the process of, of sort of looking at trying to prove Christianity from outside of Christianity, I think they end up distorting it and the 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 version of christianity they end up with this is a is a distorted version of of what it looks from the inside and i think a, a good example is is the the idea of god that that apologetics comes up with so christianity gives you this picture of god who a god who has become man and has gone to the point of cru of 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 the cross so the, the, the picture of God that Christianity gives you is a, is a God crucified. And there's no way you can ever get to that God from outside. The best you can do is to have sort of this abstract, deistic um, person sort of hovering over the machine that is the universe and, and sort of tinkering away and then maybe sometimes intervening to, to fix some of the cogs on the machine. But... But but it's such a radically different picture of who the God Christians claim to worship is. So so that's one of one of the objections I would have as well. And if I can um, jump in, actually going through the uh, the comments now, the article was um, was essentially comparing the traditional apologetic methodology to Jordan Peterson, and uh, kind of noting the irony that Jordan Peterson himself, uh, not a Christian, is uh, arguably doing more to shepherd uh, young seekers into the church than uh, the apolog than the apologist does, and um, and I was sort of agreeing with that. Um, uh, with that idea, that's exactly what I see, and I think there are, are good reasons why that's the case. Yeah, I, I attended a Nazarene school, a college, and a lot of my friends, even though I studied chemistry, um, were kind of straight, I guess, creationists, so very fundamental in their belief about the Bible and what it told us. And in fact, one of my advisor, who was a chemist who studied at Berkeley, I was a creationist, so it's kind of a fascinating world to live within. Uh, but nonetheless, what I found, I guess, in that conversation that was interesting to me was creationists had kind of adopted the same worldview as the evolutionary scientists. 
And so this world that was kind of based on or, or worshipped rationality um, was being kind of simultaneously rejected and yet assumed by the creationists. They thought exactly. that in order to believe in God, they needed to worship reasoning. And so in, in general, the reason I have an issue with apologetics is because then God is no longer God. God is subservient to reasoning, to rationality. Oh, good. Yeah. And so as soon as you think that God requires validation, then you have no longer worshipped God as almighty. And so the tradition of Judaism where God is ineffable, Yahweh is a living presence, it's, it, it can't be mediated through rationality. It's a direct encounter always. And so I think the project of apologetics is really just a worship of rationality, not a worship of, uh, I guess, an intimate aware awareness or presence that is who I have come to find God to be. That, that, is, that, is, that is such a good point. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think this point about sort of reducing God to the God you can understand is, is, is so key here. Um, I've become interested in Barth recently, but I haven't uh, managed to pick up any of his books, but he sort of, you know, has this idea of God as holy other. And what he's trying to get at there is that you can't, you can never sort of um, get at who God is from reason or from, um, you know, what, what Esther would call the natural light you sort of have, God has to come down and, um, you, mm -hmm. and sort of reveal himself to you. Um, and then there's this, um, this other theologian I like, Stanley Harwas. He has this, this great line where he says, God is God and you are not. And I think that's the posture that I think apologetics misses a lot, especially in the worst form, where essentially... You, your conception of God becomes equivalent with God. And if, you, if, if, if your conception of God or your conception of Christianity, your conception of the universe becomes disproven or becomes, comes under threat, then you, know, you can no longer sustain belief in God. So apologetics in my mind is, is often um, driven by fear because, because the God apologists believe in is simply too small <laughs> and for and fragile i agree with that one point that you uh, went over there is that once you're in that mode then the whole construct has to fit together purposely uh, perfectly and any little missing piece it, it's kind of like a house of cards i mean it, it you know it may look like it's it's all solid but then if one piece doesn't fit then then the whole thing is at risk and um so I agree with you. I think apologetics has a, it's a kind of discourse that has as a presumption, a kind of worry that, uh, that the, the whole thing needs this rational uh, construct or else it's going to fail. And, and so whenever I hear a Frank Turek or a, or a kind of a real strident uh, uh, apologist, what I, what I kind of feeling is a kind of, um, you know, a kind of pity, a pity, but a pity in a positive sense, a kind of, you know, kind of compassion for the person, because it seems to me that it implies a kind of worry that they have or anxiety or that they have about the very thing that they're so stridently 
uh, defending. Desperation is a, is a word that sometimes comes to mind, yeah. Yeah, Julian, what you were talking about reminded me of Kierkegaard's elevation of the subjective over the objective or the ethical. And so anything that can be talked about is in the ethical. It can be validated by agreement. And that is ultimately what rationality is, is it's an agreed upon, validated socially, social construct, a concept of God. And ultimately, um, the subjective is this unspeakable direct encounter. And I think what's so beautiful about the Bible for me is that if we worship Christ crucified in, in promoting that idea, we're saying that God is absurd. Like yeah, there is no validation for God because God died on a cross. It's if you get yourself in the mindset of someone in that era, God was by definition power in the world. It, it God was the same as that which had force to act, so whether it was Poseidon in the ocean or something else. Um, to think of God as weak or meek or dying is essentially to say God is not seeking validation from you. He's not trying to prove himself. God is quiet. God is the lily of the field, to kind of quote another Kierkegaardian um, analogy. Hmm. In the, uh, the core, uh, you might call it conceit of apologetics, is that the perfectly rational person should ascend to uh, to apologetic arguments insofar as they're true. And if you think about it, that entire process is uh, somewhat slavish. It's somewhat mechanical. There's no, no you, you brought up the uh, point about um, Kierkegaard's dichotomy, well, not quite dichotomy, but uh, functionally between the subjective and the objective. Apologetics strips the, the subjective out. There's no realm of commitment. There's no realm of autonomous engagement. The, I, I ascend to apologetics because that's what my mind does in response to these arguments. And that's considered success in the apologetic world. You haven't, you haven't even begun to engage with these concepts as a person, to wrestle with them, to form a relationship with the, yeah. uh, with the you might call it, object of these arguments, which is ultimately the creator of the universe, a person. Yes, that's, that's a really good point. And it introduces something I've been studying a little bit more recently, which is David Bentley Hart. And he's got a thesis that I really like in this area because he, he regards this, uh, this objective notion that you're talking about, Jared, and this argument as constraining. Um, uh, as, uh, he calls that dialectic, a dialectic argument. And he says that we need to move, and he, I think he argues pretty convincingly, away from this notion of dialectic, which he actually, in the kind of classic David Bentley Hart way, uh, describes that as violence. It's, it's kind of a, a kind of idea-based violence because you're constraining the, the, the listener, if you will, or, the, or the, the person trying to imbibe this apologetic dialectic. And he wants, it, he wants to argue that we should replace that with, with a, a notion that we, um, that we assent to, we, we, uh, we, we come to a, a, a true faith or, or, or belief in Christianity in a different mode 
And he, he says that mode is aesthetic. Now this is aesthetic, not I don't think in a Kierkegaardian sense, but aesthetic in the sense of it's a, it's a torical argument. That is to say, it's, a, it's an argument that's appealing based on essentially beauty or, or the way in which you would come to choose something that is, that is more beautiful than something else, uh, rather than something that's a constraining argument uh, and um, I really kind of like that way of framing the the notion that that arguments are are uh, fraught with that kind of violence as its core, and that we need to move more towards uh, this notion of aesthetic. I think yes, and, I, yeah, and Kier, uh, Kierkegaard um, uh, uh, comments on this as a form of seduction. So the uh, the the idea is to. Uh, is to bring somebody along into your project is to convince them to commit to uh, to this as a matter of their own uh, volition, which is the which is like uh, just like you were saying, which is the opposite of the apologetic project that that brings you on board uh, involuntarily as as a form of assent uh, to the to the arguments, a rational assent to the arguments. I think. Um, yeah, that that's right. Kierkegaard sort of tries to seduce his readers. Um, I, I I was thinking about what I what you're describing, Jim, the other day, and I was thinking about you know what is the difference between you know maybe a sort of the approach um, someone like me is trying to um, have towards Christianity, or maybe someone like Kierkegaard and the apologist, and you know the the sort of facile. Um, dichotomy I came down to is the apologist is looking for the right facts to subscribe to and I'm sort of looking for the most beautiful thing or some or something like that it's sort of like my approach to Christianity is one of looking for beauty and it seems like the apologist is just looking for the facts and you you so often see this you know um, especially when, with regards to sort of the um, the arguments for um, against the Odyssey, you'll see um, sort of something like um, the apologist saying, you know, God is this absolute will, and He wills that these people suffer unendingly. Uh, no, that these people suffer in this way, and you know that's just a brute fact, and you can you can agree with that or you cannot agree with that, but that's the truth. That's the cold, ugly truth. And it seems like so much of, of the apologist arguments are unsatisfying in that way because they claim, they claim that, that, that the view they're presenting is true, that this is the facts that is substantiated by the arguments. But what, what gets held up is just a, ugly view of reality and an ugly view of God in many cases. And uh, actually, the theodicy is kind of an interesting point uh, to bring there when you consider uh, the in, intrinsic and inherent subjectivity of God. I mean, if you were to say, if you have a, uh, a spouse and you were to say, it's, it's the nature of my spouse that they're always abusing me, uh, you can't what what does it say to to 
to speak of that as an objective fact. They're not an objective person. Uh, there's 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 some form there's relate there's relationality there. You're not talking about an objective fact of the universe. So to even to bring up a uh, a theodical argument as if it encompasses the entire uh, realm of of suffering is to depersonalize God absolutely and uh, so it it seems to me that project doesn't even get off the ground yeah anything to add there guys i could um i could read a quote from kirkegar just to turn turn things back to to kirkegar um i could so here's um here's a quote from concluding on scientific postscript where he defines truth. Um, I'm not sure how well this will fit in with what we've just been describing, but maybe it will. Um, hold on. Um, when subjectivity is the truth, the conceptual determination of the truth must also include an expression for the antithesis to objectivity, a momentum with the fork in the road where the way swings off. This expression will at the same time serve as an indication of the tension of the subjective inwardness. Here is such a definition of truth. An objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inward, inwardness is the truth, the highest truth attainable for an existing individual. At the point where the way swings off and where this cannot be specified objectively since it is a matter of subjectivity, there objective knowledge is play, placed in abeyance. Thus, the subject merely has, objectively, the uncertainty. But it is this which precisely increases the tension of that infinite passion which constitutes his inwardness. The truth is precisely the venture which chooses an objective uncertainty with the passion of the infinite. Um, I think we'll leave it at there. Does it, can anyone... Um, Tell me what he's getting at there. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got the the uh, Kierkegaard said in one uh, lecture, I believe, leave uh, leave science to the scientists or something to that um, effect. Uh, he he recognizes objective facts are objective. He's, he has no problem with the inherent nature of objectivity. He has pro has a problem with the attempt to totalize objectivity as the you know, uh, scientific materialists do, as Hegel did. The his entire project exists in this realm of objective uncertainty. So in, in the realm of ethics, in the realm of religion, in the realm of interpersonal relationship, all of these areas that cannot be captured by the objective scientific method, that's where his entire philosophy is. And that's where subject subjectivity uh, is, is, is brought to the fore. And intrinsic in being a person is moving into the future. It's moving into this realm of uncertainty. The the objective is 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 temporal. It's con confined to the temporal, and the the nature of being a person is such that there can never be any uh, any set of facts that you have to subscribe to as a matter of as a matter of logic. You're in a sense going on this journey, and intrinsic in any journey at the beginning of any journey is the choice to go on the journey. It's the, uh, it's the choice to invoke, invoke your passion and make the commitment to move into this project. 
and and for Kierkegaard, existence is the center of everything. Everything that matters starts with existence. Objectivity has its place, but ultimately objectivity is completely depersonal. It has nothing to do with a person's life and the nature of living. So this entire notion of truth in all of the realms that it matters to the person, the religious, the ethical, uh, et cetera, that's your, it, it's a, it's a matter of passion. It's a matter of commitment. It's a matter of engagement. I, I like the, uh, I like the journey uh, motif there. And that was part of Julie and my, and Robert's conversation the last time was, was this kind of narrative notion of the subjective experience and you know how we're all on this this arc of a of a journey and and that that brings you always back to this your subjective experience of that and and you face the you know a, a future that um that will play itself out in 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 only in only the subjective way that is saying only your uh, you will you own that uh, very personally and very um individually and that that makes uh, that makes subjectivity primary by by necessity in in terms of our our very experience. Yeah. Um, what is he? What do you think? I'm always a bit confused. What he's getting at with the um, what he says. Um, an objective uncertainty held fast in the appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness is the truth. So where does, how does sort of passion fit into this notion of, you know, existence as this journey into the uncertain? Um, what do you think, what do you think is getting at with, with passion um, here? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what that quote is saying, that's for sure. But um, <laughs> I, I think the thing I'm inspired to say is that we live in a world that seems to be very much designed by a certain level of uncertainty. And so just to speak personally about what Kierkegaard has kind of helped me come to terms with is you look around the world and you're like, well, birth is a very mysterious process. What place I was born into, the people, the language, et cetera, economic status. Death is mysterious. It's nearly impossible to predict when, where, how, or frankly, like the essence of death, which is complete uncertainty, almost just by definition. And then even the important things that happen in our lives, like the people we meet who we will marry or friends or business relations, they spontaneously occur. Once they happen, we can steward and, and kind of incorporate those things. But in general, our lives as human beings are characterized by uncertainty. And so if the apologetic kind of project is to eliminate uncertainty, then we're just inevitably going to be alienated from our experience. And we're going to think of God as a failure subconsciously because ultimately the apologetic project is failed. On the other hand, if we can see uncertainty as somehow the doorway into subjectivity, like, I mean, the fact that I don't know everything is actually like the other half of my subjective experience. I, 
I get to explore. I mean, a relationship would be dead in the water if I knew everything there was to know about someone. And so Kierkegaard kind of elevates the, uh, this uncertainty and sees it as actually a guideline, almost like a designed in feature of the universe to awaken us into our subjectivity. And so faith is not seen as like a means to an alternative end of achieving some objective thing, but instead the aim uh, is actually designed to put us in a posture of faith and ultimately awakening us to experience. And so incorporating uncertainty and seeing, seeing that as actually by design, what God's intention was, the only way I've been able to not feel completely alienated in my daily life, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's ex- uh, exactly right. And a lot of good points. Um, the, the, uh, this, this entire this entire conversation of subjective truth in Kierkegaard takes place, I believe, in this realm of objective uncertainty. So what he's saying is that there are plenty of things you can be objectively certain about. That's the scientific realm. But everything we're talking about here is in the realm of of things you cannot be objectively certain about, and that's the realm of the individual. Mm-hmm. And individuals are not – you can you – can, there are scientific facts about individuals, but – but being an individual itself is not a scientific fact, and the nature of the individual, the nature of the person, is that they are constantly in flux, constantly changing. So every every day, every moment is a new experience, and there's no there's no fact that can be said about an experience that you haven't yet had and you know is going to be different in the future. So what what you're doing is is making a commitment. That's where the passion comes in. You. You, it, because it's it's very easy to disengage from this project, and, and uh, Kierkegaard um, implies in uh, Fear and Trembling that many people, quite frankly, do disengage from this project. But to the extent that you're going to engage with the project of being a person, that necessitates a, a that necessitates passion. Um, yeah, um, in a conversation um, Jared and I had a few uh, weeks ago. Um, over email, he made the point that Kierkegaard sees Christianity as, um, you know, fundamentally an, an existential, um, sort of a mode of, of existence, or uh, I'm not sure what the language you used was, Jared, um, sort of a, could you? Sort uh, of, I, I believe I said a state of being. Or, so yeah, it's, not a, it, it's not a yeah, fact. It's, it's, not, uh, it's, not, it's not something attained to the universe. It's a way of being a person. It's a way of living your life. It's a way of, of engaging with reality. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, think, I think this is um, this, this conception of Christianity that Kierkegaard has about it fundamentally being about this lived existence is, is what leads to you know, one, of, one of the central arguments he makes against apologetics. Um, and this makes me think about something Jim said last week about, um, you know, how Kierkegaard actually sort of made Christianity in this sense something real, tangible, connected to your existence, something you can be passionately engaged with to you. And I think, um, I think that's what, what's, what's behind a, a lot of Kierkegaard's attacks on um, apologetics is that it fundamentally takes this experiential, existential um, nature of Christianity and then says, you know, this is something 
that we actually have to, from the beginning, put on the side and then engage with Christianity objectively. And to Kierkegaard, that's, you know, that's a fundamental um, misunderstanding, a fundamental, you know, sort of turning in the opposite direction. Um, and then if I can read one of my favorite quotes here from, you know, this is, this is the book I started with Kierkegaard, um, concluding on scientific postscripts. Um, amazing book. I, I, I just learned so much from it. But he has this, um, he just had, he has all of these, um, sort of describes these characters who, who are, are doing something. So there's, and for example, he has once he has this um, almost parable of a guy who goes to the deer park for the afternoon. And then he has a whole narrative about that. And here he has a, a man who wishes to acquire faith. Then he says, suppose a man who wishes to acquire faith, let the comedy begin. He wishes to have faith, but he wishes also to safeguard himself by means of an objective inquiry and its approximation process. What happens? With the help of the approximation process, the absurd becomes something different. It becomes probable. It becomes increasingly probable. It, comes in, it becomes extremely and emphatically probable. Now he is ready to believe it. And he ventures to claim for himself that he does not merely that he does not believe as shoemakers and tailors and simple folk believe, but only after long deliberation. Now he is ready to believe it, and lo, now it has become precisely impossible to believe to believe it. Anything that is almost probable or probable or extremely and emphatically probable is something he can almost something he can almost know or as good as know or extremely and emphatically almost no, but it is impossible to believe, for the absurd is the object of faith, and the only object that can be believed. I like that. And Jared, your comments, those are right on point. I, I, I follow you exactly there. And you, uh, you, might, you might also want to ask when when you've gotten to the point where something is so probable you can't help but believe it, you believe it as a matter of necessity, you might then ask, what is it that's believing it? Because you can, I could write a program that, uh, that, you know, that, that uh, responds necessarily to, to some, uh, um, to some algorithm. It's not quite a person that's believing it. You're, you've, you've depersonalized the entire process of ascending truth. And, uh, and, that's, and, and that's fine if the truth that you're ascending to isn't intrinsically personal, if you're, if you're recognizing a fact of reality, the color of a chair, etc. But it's definitely not the realm of marriage, it's not the realm of religion, it's not the matter uh, the realm of ethics, all of these things that require uh, intense personal engagement. If, if, when, when, you, when you reduce these to facts, you've reduced the, you've reduced the, uh, the subjectivity from them. You've depersonalized them completely. You might as well make a machine that um, that uh, that follows this project because it's definitely not a human project anymore. This yeah, makes I, me yeah think of the uh, the just the mode of the mode of a, a kind of a lecture or, and, and how far we've gone with with someone standing up before us and and making an uh, you know kind of presenting a set of ideas. And the mode that you are in when you're sitting in that in that uh, listening, there's a kind of normative demand on you to assent to what is being given to you, and and so we've 
gotten so used to being in that mode of, of discourse where where what's being delivered to us is is placing us in this posture of of normative of demand where we either see it as constraining and we assent to it or we maybe even dissent from it or we detract from it but in the end the mode of discourse is just is just constraining in that way and it's it's uh it it doesn't leave open you know some other way of of discourse or other way of engagement and it's one of the things that i've um contrasted with that is a poetic mode of discourse and or a musical mode of discourse in which it's you know to to it, it's participatory to use the overused term recently in this corner of the internet but it, it's 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 being involved it's going along with rather than you know kind of being in this mode of of constraining um um uh kind of logic and it, it would seem that, that other modes of, of Christian engagement, uh, besides this kind of notion, well, I think apologetics are the extreme version of it, but, but perhaps a lot of, of, lot of sermons are, are this way of engagement as well. And it seems to me this is one of the reasons why I have a sympathy for the new orthodoxy or the new liturgistic sacramental mode of christianity because it's more it's more living it it's more being being in it uh rather than rather than you know thinking it through and um if i can add something here i've i've recently um jared and i were also talking about this i um in a recent post i wrote i was thinking about the relationship between Christianity and power, and especially the uh, and near the end also the relationship between apologetics and power, and I think um, modernity, if if I can use that word in a in a sort of very loose, um, broad sense, is intimately connected with control, um, and the way I think about it is this way. So um, so around the Enlightenment, you you sort of have a new <clears throat> a new class of elites developing where it's it's now the people you know it's the the well educated the scientists who are now <clears throat> the people who sort of hold <clears throat> excuse me power and sway in society and rationality in that context becomes a, becomes a discourse of control uh, if if you want to be really cynical, I think what what often happens in in our rational debates is it, it essentially becomes a proxy for the political battles that are playing out. Um, so essentially, if you can win the rational argument, if you can have the most rational worldview, um, you gain the right to mold society into your own image, uh, and you really see this in the new atheist. Um, slash apologetics debates um, where and Paul Vanderclay often makes this point where it's essentially a political argument where where he sort of um, he, he always cites this this um, example of Richard Dawkins an unbelievable talking with two um, more liberal Christians and then uh, then Dawkins makes the point you know I don't really care about you guys I'm more interested in what the I'm more um, 
I'm more um, unhappy with the fundamentalists who have who want to sort of um, get their push their values onto society, and and so what I what I see is that so often behind these rational arguments is sort of a quest for power and political dominance. And now I wonder if, you know, maybe one, I think, I think for this reason that, that pure rationality is, is insufficient. You have to combine it with beauty, I think, because if, if you're just running on rationality, it's so easy it just it just becomes all about power i think it, it it has that tendency to slide into into power so i i wonder if if maybe beauty is one mode of constraint or or one one way of finding truth that sort of corrects for that tendency i, I i'm just throwing this out there i wonder if, if you guys Think I'm making Real quick, sense. that's the point I think that David Bentley Hart's trying to make in, a, in his big elaborate way, but that's, I think, exactly his point. I think but, that and, it's not really about, so I didn't talk before, I have, I have a couple babies at home and they're very loud. So. Um, I don't think it's really about, rationality is never really about rationality. So there's like, it's in the new atheists and they're, they tout rationality as, you know, as their, um, their, their calling card. It's what they're all about, apparently. But it's not, not really, because you can't be just about rationality. Rationality is just a tool. Rationality is used to, to get somewhere. Yeah. I read, this, I read this book for university um, by a couple of guys from the Frankfurt School, the dreaded Frankfurt School, and um, they, they concluded, or they basically made this argument that that it was rationality itself that was somehow the, the problem or that it's called the dialectic of enlightenment. And it basically traces the, the um, genesis of the, of the Nazis in some way. They're trying to make sense of it. I think their conclusions are wrong, but because they make too much of, of rationality itself, it clearly, it's just used as an excuse. So you you have a rational debate nowadays, and you have two guys, and they're both trying to be super rational. But um, what they're really about, like you mentioned, is is power or something like that, and power conceived of in a particular way. So for the for the Nazis, what they were trying to attain was, of course, power. But it was their version of power. It was it was the subjugation of of um, those that would you know. Uh, diversify the the gene pool in a in a, a way that they that they saw as negative, or for the communists, was power conceived of as, you know, the subjugation of those that would that would upend a um, a state that was conceived of as the the end all and be all the the state to end all states or something like that, right? Um, I guess my, my point straightforwardly is that. R rationality is always a, a cover. It's always a, it's a, it's, or a tool, a, a way to get somewhere, not, not an end in itself. It's always a, it's always a, uh, yeah. When someone claims to be rational, they're, they're hiding behind it often. If that makes sense. I, 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 I think, I, I think that's a short point. No. Sorry. 
Um, I, I was just going to say, I've, I've noticed in certain circles, just the language of, of logic, rationality, uh, et cetera, is, is so often a rhetorical tool where people are saying, I'm rational, I'm logical, I have the facts. And, and often this is just a way to, you know, to say, you should listen to me, you should give me power. And it, it's, it's more of a rhetorical tool than an actual argument, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was going to agree wholeheartedly with both of you, especially with the notion of uh, rationality as a tool, because the to hear it framed on the internet, both by the uh, the atheist and the apologist side, most of the time, it's that rationality is some kind of synonym for objective truth. To to the extent that you can say if if I'm rational, that means I have the correct facts, and that's that's not the role of rationality. Rationality is a process of getting logically true conclusions from uh, from sound premises, it's it's the process, and that that uh, that um, uh, goes back to your uh, points on beauty, Julie. And if if the if there's no logical relationship between objective facts and beauty, there's no way to get to a, a beautific conclusion from an objective fact. So you have to start with the beauty, use a rational process, and get to the beauty. So you so beauty has to be injected from the beginning. I guess you could say the same thing about um, um, a thinker like uh, like uh, what's his name? Um, the youngest of the of the four horsemen, the atheist. What's his name? Uh, Harris. Yeah, Sam Harris. Uh, he he. You already know that he that he's going to aim for that he's aiming for some sort of well-being. He doesn't deduce well-being from, from you know, the facts by using rationality. He starts with it, right? He starts with, the, with, a, with a sort of aesthetic preference for, you know, being kind rather than being brutal. Um, and then he gets there, again, using his rationality. Right, and the, his uh, his inputs for that well-being argument are uh, the when 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 uh, when drilled down to that point, he he usually says uh, things to the effect of it, it's obvious to you know mm -hmm. the majority of of, uh, of sane people, and to the extent that that's true, and a lot of the times it is in his arguments, all he's saying is that the well-being as a matter of deductive fact is connected to our. Uh, our perception, our subjective perception of that well-being. He's not yep. getting to well-being as a matter of ontology. All, all he's doing is finding a very, a very coordinated, very scientific way of, of, um, of systematizing our subjective uh, preferences and subjective uh, sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that over-criticism of someone like Sam Harris is also just a once again, it's a distraction because we don't, we have the same problem. Kierkegaard would suggest we have the same alienation from the abs, like the absolute is never going to be something we're going to be able to articulate. So like in a certain sense, admitting that is, is sets you off on a new path of 
not seeking validation from people. And ultimately like the idea of, of achieving power, the flip side of that is seeking validation, which is a very like insecure place. Like if you're complete, if you're in the absolute in relation to the absolute, then you don't need anyone's validation of your position. You're, you're in a certain sense, humbly at the center of the universe and someone else's affirmation of that is kind of meaningless, you know? And so I think in general, the challenge is to admit that we're, we'll never be able to articulate fully that axiom that is truth, but we can dramatize it. We can make poems that allude to it, but there's not really any use in seeking to rationalize the core or the still point or the, the creator. I mean, it's like, it is the unmanifest. It is that which came before time and space. It seems it's, it just feels to me like it's just a failed project to, to ask that question. Um, And the thing that is useful, I guess, is to uh, just admit that, unless we are able to relate to that mystery, we're kind of going to be spinning circles or hurting ourselves or judging people. (laughs) I just have been a recovering deconstructionist where I just (laughs) realized after probably four years, I just was deconstructing everyone else, but I had nothing affirmative to say and setting off on the affirmative project has sent me mostly silence. Um, And now I feel like I'm coming out of that silence barely with a few things that I think I can affirm, but they're like the wildflower, you know, it's, it's not something I could ask someone to validate the, the things that I affirm now are very kind of abstract and, or not abstract, but meek and simple. My everyday life is, is not a grand proposition or an epic gesture. Yes, and if I can jump off of that, that's um, Kierkegaard kind of has has this notion. He doesn't um, elucidate it, but he definitely describes it that every every Christian is the only Christian in the world. Uh, so the and it's uh, it, it's a lot like a relationship. The, I mean, there's there some every when to any individual person, somebody else's relationship, somebody else's marriage, you know, whatever, uh, seems kind of absurd. Their rituals are, are absurd. The behavior is absurd. The language they employ is, is absurd. And you can, you can describe another person's relationship in objective terms. You can give, you can, uh, you know, you can, uh, it, it has properties and you can uh, you can make abstract uh, descriptions of those properties but none of that has anything to do with their relationship their relationship is intense, intensely subjective intensely personal and it looks crazy and weird and awkward to anybody outside that relationship and that's very much like the the christian's relationship with god and um, so you can describe christianity as a a religion and Christendom as a community of people, but all you've done is is uh, describe a, a set of abstract properties about a group of people. You haven't described anybody's relationship or anybody's uh, personal engagement with God. And for Kierkegaard, the personal relation of engagement with God at, at, at the individual particular level is the entire thing from the from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. I agree with that. That's good. Well put.
Uh, yeah, just thinking about this uh, notion of deconstruction, um, and you know, I don't know how well this is, this is going to fit in, but I think Kierkegaard has given me as a, a Christian sort of resources about how to think about this question. Um, I think I think the the, the idea of, of faith and revelation is useful here where, you know, Jared had this point about how you sort of need to start with beauty um, and then move towards rationality. Um, I think that was what he said, right? Um, well, the, uh, the, the point that rationality is, is essentially a tool for connecting inputs to outputs. So, if, uh, so to the extent that you're ever going to end up with beauty, you had to start with beauty in the first place. So it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a riff on off of um, David Hume's is ought gap that you can it, essentially, you can never get, you can never oh, yeah. get something that's of category B out of something that's category A. You have to you have to start with you have to start with like and end up with like. Rationality is just the process that connects those two in a logically uh, uh, sound manner. Yeah, um, you know, I think um, Pollyanni makes Michael Pollyanni has sort of a similar thing where he says, uh, you know, you you can never uh, rationality isn't sort of you know a way of objectively looking at the world and then gathering up all the facts you want and then constructing the rational system. Uh, rationality sort of presupposes um, commitments or beliefs or faith or uh, some, you know, you know, you need to start uh, with some kind of, some kind of a frame to look at the world and then you can only, then you can gather the facts you are noticing and then you can start to construct something rational. And I think, um, for the way I, I think about rationality uh, as a Christian is that you know the most the most beautiful thing is the is God on the cross, and that is the that is the starting point for my my ethical uh, um, reflection. It's rationality begins with this upside down, powerless, crucified God, and then from that point. Um, my thought proceed so i don't know if that makes any sense but i guess the the notion of of sort of beginning with faith um and then beginning with faith or beginning with revelation and then um and, and then moving into rationality is sort of a way of um of, of having aesthetics before you have um rationality and and maybe that's way way one way to constrain the the you know, rationality being used in the surface of some kind of political project or some way of empowering yourself. And I think especially if um, this is what's so especially powerful about this, this idea of, you know, God the baby or God crucified is within this, this very, within this paradoxical image is, is this, this infinite powerlessness. Yeah. So, so this is, this is one, one great battle cry against the fear that drives so much of apologetics and it's one continuous um, tearing down of the, of the, of the powerful from their thrones. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a book called uh, Christ and the end of meaning by a guy named Paul Hessert. And there's actually a free PDF online. You can find um, the books out of circulation now, but, 
essentially he was talking about how when we encounter God, it's actually, actually a rupture in our meaning structure. And so the crucifixion is like what I would call a good piece of art does this. Like when I'm standing in front of an abstract piece of art, I sit there with the knowledge that someone put in many, many hours into this, right? In the case of Christ on the cross, his life blood, right? And then I, so I'm like, okay, why is he, why are they creating this piece of art? And then, so my rational mind wakes up. Maybe if they're making a lot of money off of it, I can kind of rationalize, okay, well, they're making money. But as far as my friends are concerned who aren't making any money, if anything jeopardizing the potential of making money in life, I'm, I'm just like shocked into this direct awareness of the individual's subjective experience. It's, it's not, there's no rationality that can make sense of the effort that they've put into this piece. It's just a kind of, a, it's a monument for the subjective. And so Christ crucified is really the, I guess, proclaiming that is, the way that the subjective can be elevated over the objective and the way that I kind of think of what Paul's project was is he's like an absurdist, you know, he's just parading around saying like we preached Christ crucified, no power structure. There is no power structure. It's just direct subjectivity. And Paul has this, uh, I think he says it in Corinthians or he says, I came to you, knowing nothing but Christ crucified. Uh-huh. You know, like, exactly. There's, there's the whole life and ministry of, of Christ. And he picks he, the one fact he picks, the one image he brings to the Corinthians is, is Christ crucified. Wow. <laughs> it just offends the mind. It just offends the rational mind. And it's so it's in, incredibly subversive and awakening. And it doesn't leave you with much... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good stuff. Yeah, I think spinning off the conversation you guys had last time, one thing that I thought was an important comment is my dad articulated pretty well, like Kierkegaard, elevating the phenomenological experience of Abraham walking up to Moriah, you know, that the idea that we often read the story after knowing the end. And, and I think the same is done with Christ times 70. You know, it's like, we know he raised from the dead. So we can just skip over those three holy days. Like there was, it wasn't a big deal, you know? And, and if you enter into that direct experience, it's very intense. <laughs> like he was basically going to disappear into complete anonymity. Like he was going to be gone off the face of the planet, you know, uh, never to be reflected on. He'd be a failed Messiah, essentially. But the thing that I think is really interesting to me about both of those stories, Abraham and Christ, is it's a net zero gain. So with Abraham, you have, he had his son, the promise of inheritance, and then he's asked to sacrifice it. And it would be one thing if like he was also given a second thing, you know, if he was given something more than just getting his son back, it would have seen, we would have seen faith, the project of walking to Moriah 
as in service of some goal or some objective gain. The same could be said with Christ, right? You have a guy who was alive in a human flesh. If he had returned after the resurrection and gone to Pontius Pilate and said, okay, I'm vindicated, I'm God. Or if he returned to the Pharisees, went in the synagogue and just preached and said, ha ha, kill me again. I don't like if he had been selfish and trying to seek validation, he might, you might say he gained something from the resurrection, but really he just reappeared as a man with his disciples and then disappeared. So there was this neutrality. And I think what that exposes in those two stories is that the, the goal was never faith in service of something higher that the only way for me to actually make sense of Abraham's mentality is to see that he truly valued intimacy with God higher than his son. He, he was like, anything I can do to put myself in a posture of humility and vulnerability and subjective encounter, that's what I'm going to do because that's truly what I see as the highest goal. If, if he sought out some higher goal, like, I guess, achieving world dominance or something, then that would be a, it'd be completely absurd. It's why for the most part, when I meditated on that story and fear and trembling, I I didn't get anything out of it because I was like, I don't see how Abraham could do that. I was taking my mentality of basically acting only in service of gain, um, and trying to put my mind in Abraham and it just didn't work. But when I started to try and think about what kind of perspective actually wouldn't be necessarily afraid that would walk humbly, it's, it's one that truly values the moment to moment subjective experience over these objective ends, like a projection of the future or some potential gain, or even in Christ's position, most importantly, validation from other people. Yeah, it's a wow. Um, I'm not sure what I can add here. Um, yeah, Jared, can you add anything to this? Um, well, yeah, that um, that I I agree with that. And thoughts that thoughts that came to mind is that that's that's the nature of the fear and trembling uh, um, uh, title. That's where it comes from. The only appropriate response to have in that situation is fear and trembling. It's the, uh, you, you described the, uh, the instrumentality, uh, the, the, a way of looking at the situation as if uh, one thing had instrumental value to, you know, in, in bringing about another thing. And the, the thing about that is if we evaluate it uh, that way, the, the, the attempted uh, sacrifice of abraham is not just absurd it's immoral it's it, oh, yeah. it it makes it makes no sense and it's 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 uh positively evil and um i'm trying to trying to remember where i was going to go with this but the when to instrumentalize it is to commit yourself to a conclusion uh, it's not. It's not to commit yourself to a conclusion in the sense that you've autonom uh, autonomously uh, decided to make one, but you've said there is there is an answer to this uh, this situation in the objective world, and uh, to the extent that you know X uh, is is efficient in bringing about Y is is uh, in 
you know, it's an inter- instrumental relationship, then whatever, uh, whatever Y is, uh, that commits me to a certain X. And that's, that's again, a very slavish, very mechanical uh, form of engagement with the facts. It's definitely not a, an interpersonal uh, engagement with God. And, and, and uh, moreover, it's, it's a form of engagement where the conclusion is already known in advance. And th- there's, no, there's no personhood in a, in a situation where the conclusion is known in, in advance. So that's, again, the role of faith in Christianity is you're, you're going on this journey with another person, with God, and the, and the future emerges on, on a, you know, a moment by moment uh, organically out of that relationship. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you have something to say, Julian? Yeah. Um, I was just thinking um, about the resurrection and, you know, he made the point that that sort of, um, you know, Christ sort of gives everything up and then sort of doesn't get any benefit in return. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here, uh, you know, what, what Christ sort of renounces when he goes to the cross is precisely the wheel of history, precisely, you know, the, um, you know, from a, from a theological perspective, he renounces precisely um, his, his, um, his being, you know, the, the son of God who, who has control over the universe, you know, he, the, this line, I could send, you know, angels to, to deliver me, but, but, but he renounces all that. He renounces any attempt to control the outcome of history. And then through the resurrection, um, the paradox is that through this renunciation, precisely by giving it up, he gains it all back again. And so I I suppose the paradox I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, when Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, it's, it's precisely the powerless who become the powerful. And I, it's, it's such a mystery to me. Um, but I think it's true, but I don't know exactly how, but I wonder if you could shed any light on that. Well, I think that's what I, when I read the gospel in the beginning, I was more interested in Christ, but now I find myself more interested in the disciples. I feel like they're a little more relatable to me. And what I realize is there's, you're basically capturing an evolution in the idea of what God is. So you have Peter who's cutting the ear of the Pharisee off right at the end, right? He, he's not, he thinks that God is an instrument, to, to use Jared's uh, point, that God is going to bring him something, specifically power in the world, right? And then God in his grace through Christ or Jesus dies and fails Peter, right? And so Peter's got nothing left. But then what's amazing is that when Jesus is resurrected, Peter realizes, oh, God was there all along. God wasn't the instrumental thing I made him to be. God was just a man willing to die. Like, and, and in a certain sense, when that occurs, you now have the realization that God is just a man. God is just something we encounter on an everyday, day-to-day experience. And it becomes much more accessible. And, and so through giving up that project of seeing God as somehow a vending machine or 
you know, a, a, maybe a, even a messianic figure, we gain intimacy with God uh, in a very immediate, meaningful way. Hmm. Hmm. And that, and, and uh, curiously, that actually brings us back to the, uh, to the point about apologetics, because the, the God of the apologists is the God of classical monotheism. It's a very static, uh, very, uh, conceptually easy to define God. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an ontological fact of the universe that has this precise set of properties, and and that's God. Uh, and there's no such thing as mm -hmm. a person that's that's you know a, a static uh, a static fact of the universe with a precise set of properties. Hmm. So there's so there's something richly meaningful in that idea of of uh, of Jesus as God and God as man. Just the just the person you're engaging with, the person you're you're going on this journey with, because it's because it's it's one thing it's one thing to believe in a god if if the god is the god of classical monotheism, anybody can do that. It's it's completely no, it's a whole another thing to have a an, a relationship with a person. Mm -hmm. And to value your moment to moment experience as somehow containing the presence of God is to somehow sacrifice the necessity to put instrumental value on everything. Like uh, uh, your grandmother who's dying. It's like, well, talking to my grandma's not getting me anywhere or God forbid, like taking care of her, that's getting you nowhere, you know, in an instrumental way. But if you can kind of see within her God, then you've, and if you truly believe that, if you can truly believe that the the lily of the field is more beautiful than Solomon in all his glory, that that your direct experience is somehow, uh, you know, uncomparably valuable, then you've you've hit the cosmic lottery. You have a front row <laughs> ticket to the universe, you know. But you're never going to be able to prove that to anyone, and so you're alienated, and yet you've simultaneously gained the universe you've sold everything you have and yet you've bought the pearl of great price you but you can't validate it you can't seek affirmation you just experience the wildflowers and i guess you praise god and you you probably write poetry or talk with your <laughs> friends about it but <laughs> it's yeah, not it really did. an argument you can make it's choosing to live a life of means without an end uh, instead of focusing mm -hmm. on the the end and the end will come the end is connected to the means but you're not focusing on that you're choosing the means and in, in choosing to live and comport yourself with that um with that uh -huh. you know, form of engagement and that reminds me of the guy in fear and trembling that uh he calls the night of faith is the guy who's just walking home oh, to yeah. eat pie with his mother or with his wife and if he, she makes the pie, he'll be happy. If she, it's like he just mm -hmm. kind of shows how simple you become. It's you've you you stepped outside of this epic journey almost, and you're just a guy walking home now. Wow. Yeah. It. You know. It seems like Kierkegaard, even for for Kierkegaard, someone like the monk who. Um, you know, there's a, a, one of my favorite theologians is Stanley Hauerwas, and he has this line about, um, you know, living a life that is unintelligible unless um, the God Christians claim to worship isn't real or something like that. 
and the idea there is sort of to live uh, absurd life mm. you know sort of this the monk who lives this celibate life serving others in poverty but kierkegaard seems to be saying that even is a temptation um because because precisely for the point you're making here um kierkegaard somehow goes even beyond the monk he sort of even goes beyond the the need to to live this profoundly celibate life and somehow to return to to renounce everything but then to return to reality and to to delight in it for what it is um yeah that's that's such a beautiful image wow and what's interesting is that when you when you when you commit yourself to an end when you have when you have a goal in mind there's there's two interesting things uh that that's true of that of that goal uh one it's uh it's it's static it's it, it's objective it's unmoving and i i actually forgot um forgot where i was going with this but it's uh it's static it's objective it's unmoving and it's your uh it's your primary focus of concerns if you if you think of uh what whatever a person's god is is their primary focus of concern that is now your god your god is static impersonal and uh, your primary focus of concern. In this case, your God is an idol. That's a very classic way of understanding idolatry, is, is setting yourself on a, uh, on a mission to, you know, to, to bring about some end. And that, that's true even if your end is the monastic life, uh, just as, as you were saying, Julie. So you, you've, you've no less created, you've created an, an idol out of uh, uh, monasticism. And, that the the three days that Christ spent in the, in the grave were meant as a um, as a embellishment of of the idol that they had made out of him. So they had three days to think about who Jesus was, mm-hmm. you know, and that turns out to be someone different than they thought he was, even though they were the most, you know, they were the closest to him, and and I think that. Christians, especially Christians that find themselves to be bound up in, in the intellectual aspects of faith, um, unlike the unlike the man who's strolling home from dinner, or strolling home to dinner, um, or maybe not, um, unlike him, they're they're bound up with, with these intellectual pursuits instead of actually bound up in living living out their faith. Um, it would it'd be well, I think, for, for I'm pointing at myself right now, of course, but to to meditate on those three days, for one, there's some um, excellent, or I don't know if I will say excellent, there's some art that people have made over the years, not recently, but um, a couple hundred years ago or so, during the Renaissance, they had many painters painted pictures of Christ in the tomb, and um, one of them is really good. Yeah, I'll just actually post a link to it here. Um, it's, it's very good because it shows it shows how dead he was. That sounds bizarre, but it shows that he was really, truly dead. So their God was dead. The God that they thought was going to save them from the political oppression of the, of the Romans was gone. And they had to think about who he really was, like I mentioned. And so two things to meditate on for the for the intellectually predisposed Christian, the death of, of God, literally, and also 
the choice of Abraham, because it's it, like we mentioned already, it is an immoral. Technically, it's an immoral choice. I, uh, I've got this idea spinning around my head. I, this is going to launch this into a different direction, but I, but I hope it's not too weird. Um, and that is the, the, um, the, well, first off, we hold this precious, uh, scripture and the, and the way that the way these stories lay themselves out for us, the way we've been talking about them. And yet there's a kind of grand irony that, um, that I think Kierkegaard kind of, for me, a little bit kind of recovers us from, which is uh, perhaps unfortunately the history of Christianity itself. If you, if you look at that moment that Kevin talked about, the, the Peter in the garden, and the kind of obvious fact that that was a misinterpretation of, of, of what Christ was up to and how we've now kind of see that story as a way into what, what, what this really means, but then, you know, just a few hundred years later, you've got Constantine, you know, raising the sword uh, in the name of the cross. And, and then that being a moment in which Christianity in the world, the worldly church, is launched onto history, at least one, one way of, of, of framing that. And then you've got the Trail of Tears that y- you, can, you can paint that, um, that history uh, you know, it's a mixed bag and we can say that out loud, but there's, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of effort through, through the church to, to, um, to become the dominant force in history, uh, in a worldly sense. And, and that, you know, and that, that feels like nothing different than that, than that impulse that Peter had in the, in the garden. And, and um, so for me, like Kierkegaard, as I talked to you about last time, Julian, Kierkegaard reopens the possibility for there to be this kind of more um, direct and personal uh, reality to Christianity. And, um, and um, I, I don't know, I don't know those thoughts, where those thoughts take you. So I know this jumps us into a little bit of a different world, but, but um, it was the thought that was going on in my head. I have a few things um, to say, you know, um, first of all, on, on the, I'll get back to what you were saying, um, Jim, but just wanted to throw in one more comment on, I think what Robert and Kevin were saying, um, I guess for, for, for intellect, for sort of the more intellectually inclined Christians, it's so often easy to sort of get, um, discouraged with the reality of what the church is and how pathetic everything is. And, um, and I suppose the vision that uh, Kevin paints for us sort of allows us to renounce the, the need to, to, to have the, the perfect church or to have the perfect reality to, um, Goodness, where did everyone go? To have the perfect reality. Yeah, I suppose, um, you know, it's just being able to live in the reality and live in the reality as as for what it is and to, to love the reality for what it is and not feel the need to always change people. 
um, to conform to your own image. That's such a fundamental thing for me, um, which I don't live up to at all. <laughs> um, and now, now, now as to what Jim was saying, um, you know, about Christianity sort of becoming obsessed with its own worldly power. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called the patient ferment of the early church. And that's, that's just a incredible book for me because the, the point the author makes is that um, sort of asks the question, how is it that, you know, this little cult that starts out around Jesus with just a few followers could by the fourth century become the religion of the empire. And then he sort of um, lays out some facts about how the church engaged in mission. Um, he points out, for example, that the early Christians actually weren't very active in sharing the gospel or sharing the, their faith with others. They weren't, um, didn't invite outsiders into their church as sort of a way of sort of showing the beauty of the faith. Um, they didn't instruct catechumens to, um, you know, promoting mission wasn't part of um, what they instructed catechumens to do. Um, and he, he has, he has uh, other, he points out other, uh, other observations like that. So the, the, the church wasn't sort of involved in this sort of explicit missional um, engage, uh, sort of missional, it wasn't sort of actively trying to get people to join the church by sort of saying, you know, this is the gospel, believe it and join. Well, he makes the point that what they did instead was what he describes as a patient ferment, which which is instead an emphasis on, uh, you know, living in a way that is radically different to the mainstream of Roman society. And through that lifestyle to draw people in. And so there was a much bigger emphasis on, you know, living faithfully and and a much more inward emphasis on forming people in the faith. And he also makes the point that there were, um, up to the fourth century, I think, there were three treatises on the virtue of patience and none on, um, you know, mission or anything like that. And so, so he's, so I suppose the virtue of patience is, is so essential here. Um, how you can just patiently um, live your life as a Christian and, and sort of let, sort of um, let time be greater than space and give up the need. And, and, th and with this virtue of patience, you give up the need to, to control the outcome. Um, yeah, I, I hope that, does that make any sense? Yeah, to, to let, let yourself be known by your fruits. Yeah, if you do that, you don't need to tell people who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's very true. Um, there, there's a, I, I don't know if anyone has this experience, but there is a danger actually the other way too, where, um, so my, my church tends to emphasize living living out your faith, and that, that, is, uh, that is done as a form of evangelism. So we don't do, you know, we don't do, um, 
uh, as much, what would you call it, community outreach or whatever, or, or more explicitly even um, evangelical style. Yeah. Um, outreach, it's just like, you know, you do service work for the community, but you don't say, you know, we're doing this, hey, come join our church. It's more like, you know, here we are, we're doing, we're working, we're doing, <laughs> trying to do good things, right? But then it can become, the danger becomes um, a refusal to do anything that seems like it might be explicitly, <laughs> explicitly, uh, overtly Christian even, even evangelizing. Um, that's obvious, that's probably a unique thing for my church, but um, yeah, I found that, that that does happen sometimes. So. Yeah, that that uh, touches on Julian's point about beauty. I mean, if you 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 make a beautiful song, you don't need to convince somebody to appreciate it. The, the exactly. beauty of the song does that intrinsically. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Um. You guys, sorry, Jim. I guess it seemed like you guys uh, dropped off for a second there. Um, and I guess the point we were essentially making is um, the virtue of patience as an antidote to the need to control, uh, right? So in the book I'm reading right now called um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, uh, the author essentially makes the point that, you know, what Constantine represents is the triumph of impatience over patience. Where, and I think Kierkegaard has this too in, in um, his attack upon Christendom, where he says, you know, the, the triumphant church has seized what is um, supposed to be in the future and tries to sort of have it now. So, so, so this, this vision of, of just living patiently and leaving things up to God, I guess, is um, much more powerless. Yeah, I, I guess the other way I would approach that, yeah, we lost our internet connection there for a minute, so we took us a second to get back. But yeah, I think it's, the fascinating thing is how the, the scriptures and the, uh, you know, kind of the deeper story seems to, to, to still perpetuate itself through history such that it lands in our lap all these centuries later, uh, despite the fact that the worldly manifestation of even that very that very narrative, um, you know, ultimately manifests itself in the in in what you would ultimately expect in a fallen world, uh, as 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 exactly what you're talking about, being impatient and and imagining imagining it in this way of of triumphant uh, of triumphal triumphalism or or um, you know uh, all the all the different ways in which it ultimately manifests itself. Uh, uh, corruptly in the in the real world, not unique to Christianity. That's not unique to Christianity. We, it's it's the same in non-Christian manifestations of 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 man uh, humanity's uh, efforts to 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 control. To control. Mm-hmm. And is there any any virtue more important for today than patience? And <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. any virtue under a more direct assault than patience, I should add, because, yeah, what is what is our um, whole um, internet, social media culture forming us into, uh, if not um, impatience? 
Yeah, that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite quotes from Fear and Trembling, which is the night of faith to the onlooker seems to have almost an infinite procrastination. Or, or you remember that quote, like infinite procrastination. It's like, what is he trying to accomplish here? It's a, I, I could maybe even find it, but because I underlined it a number of times, but. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's it's exactly. Yeah, it's, and the paradox for me is 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 so often, giving up on the result, actually is the only way to get the result, um, and I, you know I think of this, uh, you know people have made this point with regards to um, the whole argument over faith and uh, faith no, over works and grace, uh, and and. People sometimes make the point that um, it's only when you stop trying to to be a proper Christian or trying to live up to what Jesus calls you to do and sort of accept the fact that you're radically saved by grace. Um, it's only then that you can actually start to to live that way. It's only when you sort of give up the need to control uh, who you are and and what you live out. <laughs> which isn't something I've personally experienced, but people tell me it's true. <laughs> or also give up, uh, give up the project of formulating in your head some correct image of what God is or who God is or, or how, uh, what the rules are or, or, uh, or how it's supposed to be pictured or, or what my experience of that is supposed to be. You know, some, I'm supposed to have some, uh, you know, some experience like, Someone else describes for me. Uh, all of those things perhaps need to be given up. Yeah, and uh, to touch on what Julian was saying, the this notion of in impatience seems to imply that the uh, the the impatient Christian is longing for the kingdom, but they they they'd like the kingdom to manifest now. Um, but you, you look at real world examples of that. Constantine, for example, it's not like Constantinian Rome uh, was a model of uh, kingdom mindedness. So this, so this, it's, so this impatience is, seems to be a cover for a, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, just a, a blatant worldly power grab. It's, it's complete, completely contrary to, uh, to, not only the biblical understanding of power, but to biblical ideals. Uh, so it's it's not it's not simply that impatience is intrinsically a problem because it's impatient. It's that impatience uh, it in necessarily causes one to pursue things that are uh, that are anti-Christian. I think yeah, wow, that's a good point. Um, I think that's why why uncertainty and paradox are so central to to Kierkegaard too, because for him. You know, when once you start to sort of solidify, um, yeah, I don't want to go to, exp I, I suppose once you sort of start to solidify what you think everyone should be like or who you, or if you think you have sort of this grasp on God, that is also tied up with this impatience because, you know, as Paul says, we, we see, we see only darkly. So, so I suppose this, this sort of grasping on to um, this sort of arriving at the end of the journey, but, 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 but refusing to acknowledge that you are still on the journey and all of the, the different ways that manifests are all expressions of impatience and will ultimately 
lead to to destructive outcomes i think so this need there always needs to be this tension between the now and the not yet so so this this sort of sense that you know you have chosen the path that you're going to follow as a christian and that you have some idea of where you're headed but you always have to be humble about um you know who you are um what you're headed towards and what your conception is of that and so there there always needs to be this tension between what you have solid and what you're sort of um what what, what you can't grasp and and once you try to grasp too much that's a move of impatience and it's horrible i think impatience is also a sign of um or a symptom of uh, a sense of false security so we have all of these things that you know we talk about them distracting us as well but we just have all of these things even our even our, our structures that we build our um theological structures where we try to we try to define god that is we try to trap god in a, in a way so that we can control we can exert some, some sense of control over him and therefore gain some security for ourselves and i think that for a lot of people what's needed is um the way to uh, to a position or to a position where you can make the movement of faith is what's needed is uh, a shock and um but for others i think that the 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 shock is delivered um what would i say it's delivered in advance or or it's delivered by nature in a sense where uh in fear and trembling he talks about he talks about nature's like um he 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 actually uses gloucester from Richard III, as an example, and Gloucester was a, de- a very deformed man. He was a hunchback, and he said, uh, you know, he he went on and on about how he was deformed and he couldn't he couldn't live a normal life, and that that for Kierkegaard that was a a shortcut to the the religious. So he, the the quote is that he says such natures are aboriginally in the paradox, and they are by no means less perfect than others. It is only that they are either damned in the demonic paradox or delivered in the divine. And he goes on from there. But basically what he's saying is what's needed is a shock. And if, if you're, in a sense, if you're lucky, you are already in the position without having to, without having to receive it artificially or something like that. And those who are in that position, aboriginally, they, they are either they have they basically have two routes they can go they're either damned in the demonic in a defiant position um or a defiant stance on their own position in regards to god or they're saved by the divine that is they take up the right stance in relation to god so really i can add to uh, some things here you know um this this brings me to another critique of apologetics um the reason why it's almost impossible for someone like um let's use the archetype here sam harris to um to come to faith and the reason the dialogue or the debate with the with the apologists is so fruitless is because both of them are operating from the sense of um of certainty of um of 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 we know what 
what the truth is. And, and both of them are in no position to, to recognize that uncertainty is at the center of the religious life. And, and like Robert just said, you know, these people don't need rational arguments. They need a shock out of that whole way of thinking. Um, and it, it just remind uh, it reminds me of, of Jesus saying, um, the poor and the destitute are the closest to the kingdom of God, because these are the people who have, who have, who are the, the most powerless and have the least to lose. And for, for so many of us, um, what needs to happen before we can ever truly enter into the religious life is for us to deconstruct all of the, the idols and the, the things we are holding on to and the power and, and all of the, the, you know, mammon, essentially, all of that has to be deconstructed before we can ever arrive at faith. Yeah, it seems to me that there's kind of a competing worldviews at play. One is the comparable value. So the, the amount of money you have in the bank account, that makes the rich man winning in this game. Anything that has a metric or can be kind of reduced to numbers, I guess, or even communicated, that's, there's this one paradigm that's communicable value. And then there's the infinite value the the eternal or the the lily of the field once again where it's like it's just abundance of like if god is truly present to us right now that statement is that the highest goal the greatest aim we could have is here now and it's equally available and to your point julian the the person who's poor in this metric system is going to be looking for an alternative. <laughs> They're going to be like, well, I'm not winning the game over here. Is there an option? And Christ kind of can invite them out of their slavery to this oppressive system of comparative value. But the rich young ruler is going to have a hard time because he's winning. Even though if you were to put the metric of the infinite next to the small little comparison it'd be like off the chart you know um he is winning in his own paradigm and so if he surrenders this comparative paradigm he's having to let go of a winning hand whereas the impoverished person has very little to lose so it's all about still, you still have to get off of that paradigm. And I think the victim mentality is a problem because it's basically saying that the rich people in power or the people in power in general, um, it's validating that structure of belief, which is that there is this comparable, measurable value in the human experience. And so if you say you're losing in that, you're, you're actually edifying or reinforcing that structure. So that's a problem too. But um, to appreciate the lily in its glory, this everyday accessible infinite beauty, you have to kind of be willing to step off of the, that game of comparison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jared and I were talking about this too. Um, you know, on the point of, of victim mentality, I think 
what what often what sometimes ends up happening there is um, you're still holding on to this paradigm of um, power where you're trying to empower yourself, but the hierarchy of the most um, the richest or whatever has suddenly been flipped on its head, and now the poor people are just on the top of the power hierarchy. So you're you're still you you've um, you've you've empowered the poor, but you've but in a sense, you've um, you've made them worse off, right? In in a sort of material sense, you've given them the benefits of being in power, but in the spiritual sense, you've um, you've put them into the place of uh, yeah, they're sort of worse you've moved off. them further from grace. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And at that point, to 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 um, point, uh, that's exactly what. Um, Nietzsche was complaining about in the, gene- the genealogy of morals. He was complaining that what Christianity had done was simply flipped it. Nope. Flipped the the, um, uh, the uh, structure of morality so that the meek will literally inherit the earth in the sense that they will take the place of the, the powerful. Right? And that, just like you said, just is, is obviously a negative when it comes to Christianity because if they simply take the place, like literally take their place, they, they become the rich man and then they have, you have the same problem all over again and they have just as much trouble as the original rich man in getting through the eye of the needle, right? Yeah, one thing that, uh, that I thought was interesting, I've commented on this before, is that the, um, on, uh, well, um, Nietzsche's point is that the, uh, the Christian, the entire Christian value set, the uh, and Christian's ethical language, is modeled on on weakness, on powerlessness, humility, servitude, uh, etc. So it, there, we we live in an interesting time now, where Christians have assumed power. They've taken the, the they've taken worldly power by the horns, and it, it's it's always struck me how incredibly awkward it is as as Christians try to wield power using the language of powerlessness because that's the that's the language they have and it's 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 awkward it's bumbling buffoonery and it it's obviously so so that 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 con that conflict is always I, I, I find that interesting on a regular basis you know just watching the news it's interesting huh. yeah these are all good points. I, I would like to just throw out uh, kind of applause to Julian for putting this together. I, this, this has really worked pretty well, particularly the last two conversations has really enriched my um, engagement with, with Kierkegaard again in a way that, that I really appreciate. Jared has helped as well. And now we got the, the, the real academic expert, Robert, down there. And, and uh, yeah, right. Kev joined in as well. So this has been really great, and I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Kevin, you added so much to the conversation and uh, Jared, as always, is just brilliant. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really glad we, we got you guys together. Um, we should uh, wrap it up because we've been going for almost two hours and we could probably go another hour. But, yeah. So thanks, everyone, for, for being here. This has been great. Yeah, yeah this was great. Okay.